If you're not there already, turn to Mark 14. We'll dive in in just a minute. Well, there's a phrase that the disciples say that I think is just poignant. What a waste. And you can hear that kind of ring throughout the room if you put yourself there. And then Jesus responds and says, no, what a beautiful thing she has done. I mean, we're, as a people, are very familiar with waste. So I'm going to give you some statistics on waste, of how much we waste in a couple different areas. All right, you ready for it? So the average American throws away 250 pounds of food a year. That's six to eight weeks worth of food. Okay, that's a lot. Shake your head if you're, yeah. Uh, In our commute, the average American has 26 minutes of commute from there and back. If you total that up, that's over nine days that we uh, waste in the car. Collectively, three and a half million years worth of time. So that's waste. But I could talk to you about like things that we waste or things that we like, we buy too many clothes or those type of things. We waste this and that. But that's not really not going to motivate you. Like you're going to go home and you're not going to eat all your crust on your sandwich, okay? You're going to dump that out. Or maybe you would. You know, it's, all the nutrients are there. So my mom tells me. But the reality is, is that's really not going to like change you. But there's one thing that like we are conscious of when it comes to waste. Like we don't want to waste our lives. Like we don't want to get to the end of our lives and say, I have so many regrets. Like I wasted so much of my life. Like we're actually mindful of this. And I want to, I want to tell two different stories, two different paths and we're talking about not wasting our life and what we actually waste our lives on. Um, you know, in what I do as a, as a pastor, I get, I get to be part of like some of the most intimate things in people's lives. Illness, death, grief, um, celebrations, new, new births, those type of things. And one of the things is when we sit down with people who um, have just experienced a, a loss and they're planning the memorial service. So I want to tell you the story of two different paths, of one who wasted their life on things that honestly uh, did not matter and people have already forgotten, and the other of a path of someone who has invested and wasted their life to the glory of God. So when we were in Tuscaloosa, there was a family that uh, we were meeting with, and we were talking with them, and their father had just passed away, and these are now adult children that we're talking to. And we just started asking just basic questions like, you know, who is your dad? What did he enjoy? Just tell us about him just so we can kind of get a feel for how, you know, we can communicate in the memorial service. And it didn't take us very long to realize that this is a man who had cut off relationships. Like if someone did something that he didn't like, they were just like cut off. Or he didn't really invest in relationships. But there was one thing they kept coming back to. And that was Alabama football. Now, I know some of you guys are like roll tide all the way, you know, stuff like that. I see you, Ryan. But here's the reality is they they kept talking about how much time dad would spend on the recruitment websites and talking about strategies and all these type of things and spend thousands of dollars uh, following the team around the country and all that kind of stuff. And the reality is what, what, what started to sink in, I was like, Nick Saban doesn't even realize this guy exists, right? He's not like calling him for strategy or like who he should recruit or any of this. But like so much of his life was devoted to that. In the end, at the end of the meeting, they boiled down their dad's life to this. Our dad didn't love a lot of things in life, but he sure did love football. And I left that meeting thinking, how tragic. What we just walked through 
was a tragedy. Essentially, this man's life was wasted. The kids didn't have a relationship with him. They, his funeral would be marked by a dozen or so people that kind of came out of obligation rather than love for a man. Then last weekend, uh, Melissa was able to go up to Chicago. And so I was uh, by myself with the boys, and I call that survival weekend. Where, uh, and you know what I'm talking about if you're single dads. Like, we just don't do it as well as our, our wives do. And so, like, they got Jimmy John's and pizza and donuts and anything I didn't have to cook or prepare, right? Melissa was super proud. And, uh, and, but she went up to Chicago, and uh, there was a, a, a woman when she lived there in, uh, during her elementary years who had invested in them and in a way that she wasted her life for the, for the God's glory and invested in relationships. And when they came back and they were telling me stories about that, it was clear that this woman, Mikey, had been giving her life to the things that mattered most, to where Jesus would say, you wasted your life on a beautiful thing. And I think that's what we have before us this morning. This is a sobering text when you think about the implications for what it would mean for us, about what are we wasting our lives on, and what would Jesus say is beautiful. So I want to walk us through this passage, and I think it speaks to worship. So when we talk about worship at fellowship, we're not talking about just when music happens. We're talking about worship is a, a response to what God has already done. We are responding to God. And so we are responding with our heart's affections to him. So I think Jesus, when he is pointing out what this woman has done, is declaring what she has done as an act of worship. And so by declaring an act of worship, Jesus is saying, what you worship, you will give your life to. And so we're going to see this contrast between the woman and the disciples. So let's start in Mark 14, 1 through 11. <clears throat> From this point on in Mark's story, it's going to be entirely centered on the Passion Week, the crucifixion of the Messiah, the servant king. So he's going to be talking about this uh, exclusively from here on out in the last two chapters. But the main story of the woman is, again, this is kind of like a Mark sandwich. You have a, a top piece of bread, which is the chief priests are planning and plotting to kill Jesus. Then you have the anointing of Jesus is the middle part, the kind of the meat of the passage. And then you have another piece of bread, which it goes back to plotting against Jesus. But now it's Judas who's joining in with them. Okay, so this is, if you think about it in a sandwich, that's what we're going to be walking through. So uh, Matthew 26 and John 12 kind of give us a fuller expression of what's happening here. So if you want to um, write down those, Matthew 26, John 12, you can go back through it this week and, and kind of see some commentary from what they are telling. Same incident, different perspectives. Mark is just to the chase. He doesn't add a lot of names. He just kind of, he's in and he's out on a story. So we're going to be uh, citing John 12 quite a bit. So verse 1 and 2 is just setting the context of where we're at. We are in the Passover week. This is the, what we would refer to as the Passion Week. Um, this is the final life of Jesus. Verse 3, we're going to see the context of where it's taking place. So, while he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure, pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So the significance in the setting. So they're in Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem in a kind of a bedroom suburb community of Jerusalem. And they're, they're there. And this is the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. So there's some significant things that are happening in, in the setting. 
in the setting, notice whose home they're at. They are at the house of Simon. What does it say? The leper. Okay, what, do we, what can we just clearly just like articulate about this passage? Does he still have leprosy? No. He doesn't have leprosy anymore because if he had leprosy, who wouldn't be at the house? No one would be at his house. Like leprosy was like a death sentence. You're cast out. Um, it's uncurable. So what is, this, what is this telling us about what happened? This man has been healed. Like this man where he was um, dead, where he was outcast, he is now having a party at his house. He is ha- he's welcoming Jesus. He has new life. The other thing that John 12 tells us is who is actually here too, is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus earlier on? Dead, not dead anymore, he's alive. So this is, this is kind of just a, uh, some cool details when you think about it. These two men are gathered together with Jesus, and it's kind of the core of Jesus' ministry. He's bringing dead things to life. He's bringing what was thought of as hopeless. He is actually bringing hope and speaking that into. And so this context of Jesus is sitting here while the, while the Pharisees and those are plotting against them. What is the posture of Jesus? What is he doing? He's reclining. Isn't that something? Like, if I knew that, like, Tim Head was trying to kill me, like, I wouldn't be reclining in my office, right? Like, I would be getting my uh, carry permit. Like, I would figure out, like, where Tim's at at all times. Like, not, I don't think he's trying to kill me, but, like, you know, I wouldn't be reclining. So Jesus, this is just such an interesting thing. His anxiety level isn't super through the roof because he's, he knows he's in the care of the Father. No one's going to take his life without him giving it to them. And no one's going to take his life without the Father's will. So this is just, it's just fascinating when you look at this, some of the details of that. So what's happening here is this woman is anointing Jesus. Now this is uncommon, it's not uncommon for the, the guest of honor to be anointed. But what does she do? She, she takes it to another degree. She extravagantly does it in extravagantly extreme, like she uses a large quantity, John says, and inside this vial was pure nard, not to be confused with pure lard. Um, I think you can get that at many restaurants in the South. Um, But this is a pure nard, which is taken from the roots of a rare Himalayan plant, very costly. It's no surprise that the disciples are like, what's going on? Like you're wasting, right? Like to to the average onlooker, this is going to look like an extravagant waste. Um, in verse 4 and 5, but they were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? The, in the original language, what this indignantly remarking to one another, what, the, what they're talking about in the commentaries is that this, it's like they're snorting at her. Like they're audibly making their disgust known to this woman. Like they're snarking at her. Like it is obvious to everyone in the room they're disgusted at what is happening, okay? So that's what's, what's happening there. For this perfume, what's their objection? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. Okay, so Jesus, they're saying it's a waste, but Jesus says this woman, what she's done is a beautiful thing, Okay? So she's done a good deed to me. She's done a beautiful deed. Look in verse 6. Jesus said, let her alone. Stands up to her. Stands up to them on her behalf. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. Now, to me is an interesting thing because Jesus has spent his whole life being a servant of all, giving his life away, right? And what does this woman do? She gives back to Jesus. 
Now, this would be like one of my kids doing something nice to me and taking care of me or something, right? I mean, we spend, as parents, we spend our lives serving them. And what if they recognize, hey, Dad, I know you serve all the time. I've got dinner tonight. We'd be like, what? You know, like, like but Jesus receives this as a beautiful gift that she is recognizing who he is. Verses 7 and 8. For you will always have the poor, and whenever you wish, you can do, do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now John, in chapter 12, tells us that Jesus, Judas is the one that's primarily speaking here. And Judas isn't really upset that the money didn't go to the poor. It tells us in John 12 that Judas was the money keeper for, G, uh, for the, the kind of the the treasurer of Jesus's ministry, and that he was actually stealing cuts from Jesus's ministry. So Judas, this thief, was stealing out of the pocket of the ministry, essentially. So Judas is recognizing the value of what this woman is doing, and if it's the, kind of the equivalent of value of like $30,000 today, okay? So this woman is essentially going in there and putting $30,000 of uh, perfume on Jesus, Judas isn't, like, concerned for the poor. Oh, look, what about the poor? Like, John, John tells us in his depiction, no, Judas is thinking about the cut that he could have had. So he's thinking about, I could have sold that. I could have, I could have made some money off of that. Like, that's where that's coming from. Um, I've heard some different people talk about, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the poor and in reference to that? Well, it's not don't help the poor. Like, you're always going to have the poor. Don't worry about the poor. Like, that's not what Jesus is communicating. He's actually quoting, uh, paraphrasing, from Deuteronomy 15. I would encourage you to write that down. Deuteronomy 15, 11 specifically. But the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 15, I'll give you a synopsis of it. Deuteronomy 15 is talking about how we are to care for the poor, how we are to forgive debts, how we are to see when a brother or sister is in need. We are to actually care for that need. We are to come alongside them. That we are not to be hard-hearted against the poor, but when we see a need, we are to respond. So Jesus is quite clearly, he, what I think he is saying in this is like, you will always have the poor. He's just, he's just naming a fact. Like, we live in a fallen world. There will always be needs that you can respond to. But he's not saying don't respond to the needs. Do you hear that? He's saying respond to the needs, but there are always going to be needs. But what this woman has done is actually an act that is beautiful. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why, why this act is beautiful, but that's just a little bit on that. The irony in this is so rich when you th- start to think about, she anointed my body for burial. Now, how she anointed him was she poured, uh, poured the, the vial over his head. Okay, so now I want you to think, I want you to think big picture, Jewish, um, Jewish culture, what they, what they did, Old Testament stories, is there, who, who is the type of person in the Old Testament who is anointed with oil, for, starting with the head? Does anyone remember? What type of person? A king. So there might have been others, but think about this. Samuel anoints Saul with oil and declares him king. And then he anoints David with oil on his head and declares him king. This woman, whether she knew it truly or not, is declaring and anointing Jesus as the true king. She is saying, with this act, Jesus is the true king that Israel always needed 
and always wanted, and he is here. But normally, a king, what would happen with a king as soon as they were anointed with oil? It would usually happen at the beginning of their reign, right? But Jesus says, no, this woman is anointing me for burial. See, this true king came not to reign and rule in the way that they thought of establishing his kingdom in the here and now, but he came that he may die, that we may actually have life eternally, not just life here in abundance, but life eternally. So this king, this true king, was being prepared for burial. Let's wrap up this, this section, verse 10 and 11. Then Judas, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray an opportune time. Now, if you look back on verse 14.1, you'll see that the scribes and Pharisees were seeking. Again, this is the sandwich. Their scribes and Pharisees are seeking to destroy Jesus and plot against him. The back half of the passage, Judas is tied in with them, that he's seeking to, uh, to betray Jesus as well. Now, I think, I think Mark does this in a, the way that Mark writes. I'm, I'm just astounded, just this how he writes, and inspiration of the Spirit through him. But that there's a, such a contrast with what Mark is highlighting for us. And because we know later on that Judas will betray Jesus for how much? 30 pieces of silver. Now, compared to this, it's, le- it's a tenth or less of what this woman just poured over his head. And I think, I think what Mark is making a clear contrast is what Judas will sell off Jesus for his true value, what Judas thinks is his value, and what the woman thought the value of Jesus was. See, the contrast of what Judas did is that he is, he's actually the one that's truly wasting, is he not? He's truly wasting the opportunity, and he is giving up this opportunity there. All right, so I want to spend the rest of the time, over 50% of the time, on what does this mean for us? Like, how does this short story uh, of plotting, anointing, plotting again, how does this, what does this mean for us? Well, I think the word waste is an interesting one when we start thinking about it for us. Wasting your life on Jesus is never a waste. But what is waste really? Let's think about this. You heard the phrase, one man's uh, trash is another man's treasure. No more true than at a garage sale day. Have you ever been to a garage sale recently? We have them in Franklin Green all the time. We, so we're all putting our stuff that has no value to us anymore. And we're putting it out in the, like, out in the street or whatever. And then people are coming by and being like, oh, that would be like so great in my life. So one, one man's trash. And then we start bartering over like a dollar or whatever, right? That's what happens. But think about what waste is. We talk about wasted education. We talk about wasted opportunity. We talk about wasted food. We talk about all types of waste, right? But what is waste? Waste is when something isn't being used for its intended purpose, we call that waste. When something isn't being used for its intended purpose, we call that waste. This is kind of a silly example. If you left milk out overnight and you can no longer use it for its intended purpose, it would be wasted, right? So when we think about wasted, we think about something not being used for its intended purpose. So when we think about our lives, let's dig in a little deeper. This raises some really interesting questions about us. 
what is our purpose then? If we are to be people who don't waste our lives and actually waste it on the right things, then what, are, what is our purpose as children of God, as, as humans, to interact with God, to interact with others? What does this look like? Well, I think we have to ask, what is the highest and best purpose for your life? What are we here for? So maybe, maybe you're, you're kind of thinking about that right now. Or what is my purpose? What am I here for? What is the meaning? And you might be thinking about, is it to be happy? Is it to squeeze as much comfort as I can get out of its pleasure? Is it to the one who has the most toys wins? Like, what is it? Is it, is it family legacy? Is it to, uh, it's to you know, kind of give my life to my family and friends? Well, I think the authors of the Bible are extremely clear from Genesis to Revelation that our highest goal, our purpose as human beings is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. Like we were created to worship God, to be in relationship with God, and to glorify him. And so when we talk about glorify him, what does that mean? It means to magnify him. It means to live all of life with God, pointing to God and finding your satisfaction in life in him that actually brings him glory. John Piper has this quote that I want to say a couple times so you get it. It's a really simple quote. But it says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Let me say that again. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So if we are looking to life for satisfaction, for fulfillment in things other than God, then we will be turning to these broken cisterns where we will constantly be looking for life in things and squeezing out life of things that actually will never deliver. So when you think about our purpose, is our, if, our, if we're not looking at our purpose is to live all of life with God, that, that Jesus, the true king of Israel, the anointed king, actually is living and actually has given us by faith, if we put our trust in him, has given us his spirit, then we actually can live all of life with him. That we actually can, Jesus as king, if I am his and I'm giving my life to him and I'm finding satisfaction in him and glorifying him, I am actually learning how to live all of life with him. Jesus, how, how do I raise my kids? How do I interact with my wife? How do I treat my coworkers? How do I work? What do I work for? Where is my identity? All of these questions begin to be answered if Jesus is the true king. We try to, we're finding our satisfaction in our life in him. And I think when Jesus was defending Mary, I think he says, guys, there's no waste here. I mean, guys, like, look at this. This perfume, which was painstakingly extracted for the purpose of anointing, Mary's life was just given, like she just gave for this moment. She's honoring and worshiping the king. This is what he says. When the gospel is preached, wherever it is preached, they will always talk about this because it is a beautiful act. And I always wondered, what, like, what, is that, what does that even mean? I think it's because her sacrifice will not go to waste. He's going to use it for his mission, for the purpose of the gospel, proclaiming that and going forward. Now look in verse 8. It says that she has done what she could. Do you remember in chapter 12 when when I taught on the widow's might, what did the widow give? She gave these two coins, but it said that she gave all she had. See, I think the thing that these two women have in common, one gave two coins and everyone around her was saying, oh, that's not very much, like give more, right? Okay, didn't please the crowd. And then what happens in this room is she gives what she could and what are they complaining about? Oh, she gave too much. But what's the link between the women? They gave 
what they could. They gave all. Like as an act of worship, they weren't concerned about what was happening around her. See, Jesus celebrated the tiny gift and the extravagant gift because they were both given to him. So I think when you look at, when you start to look at why don't we give to the things that matter most? If we say, what is eternal? Like if we just like nail that, what's eternal? Well, God's word, God's people, God's spirit, all of those are eternal. Like we can bank on that. God says that. We can put our life, we can stake our life on that. Why don't we give our lives to finding satisfaction in God and glorifying him with our lives? Like what holds us back? Well, I think there's several things. I think when we start thinking about it, we're afraid of the cost. I mean, I'm afraid of the cost. Like, if I, God, if I gave you everything, like, what would that look like, God? Like, would, would, you, would you ask me to go someplace where I don't want to go? Would you ask me to move someplace I don't want to move? I mean, I love my life here in Franklin, Tennessee. Like, I love you all. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, I, like am, I, am I questioning, like, God's goodness to me? Like, what, what would God do? Like, but I think for me, it's thinking about, I think of the temporary things way more than I think about eternal things. And I think what Jesus is just clearly pointing out to us is it wasn't waste because she was giving herself to things that mattered the most. There's a time when Melissa and I were just married and we were going to build a house in Tuscaloosa and we had an opportunity to go to a lake house on Smith Lake and it was this custom um, built home that kind of on a pier of Smith Lake and it's just a beautiful house. And they, it, was, it was pretty much brand new and we were able to use it and we were down there and, and you know, because we we're about to build a house, we were talking about all the finishes and like, oh, wouldn't it be awesome to do crown and do this and pointing out like the, the granite and that was when granite was new and like, like we're just like pointing out all these things that we would want in our house and we're just we're, like the whole week, brothers and sister-in-laws were like talking about all these nice things and what we would want to have in our house and what that would look like. It wasn't wrong. My father-in-law pulled like a Jesus juke on us and, um, and he uh, took these post-it notes and he started putting them up around the house on these things that we were all commenting about and he just put temporary. Again, choked up, he's right there. Um, but I remember it shifted the conversation for us. Because in the, in the mirror, he had wrote eternal. And it's such a, it's, isn't, that, isn't that what Jesus is doing here? He's shifting the focus of what they are focusing on is all these temporary things that honestly, you could waste your whole life doing that. But he's saying when you waste on me, it never will be waste. And it was so convicting for me as I was, as I was thinking about this, and most and I have been talking about just how we spend our time and what I spend my time on, because if you look at our time of what we value, what we, our heart's affections, that's what we worship and what we value. If you think about how we spend our time, let's just look at our time. It's not uncommon for us to exchange, hey, what shows are you watching on Netflix? What show do I need to binge watch on Netflix? And like we talk about binge watching shows on Netflix and it's like no big deal. You wasted your whole weekend binge watching show on Netflix. But that's like common language, right? We talk about it. Or someone who's training for a triathlon or, or an Ironman or whatever it is, you know, they spend two to three hours a day doing that. But then when you talk about, well, how much time are you investing in your relationship with God or your kids or your, your spouse and those type of things? Well, you know, I'm just so busy. I just don't have, have time for it. 
Like, I don't know if I could get up early. Like, I'm not, I'm not a morning person, Eric. Like, don't put that on me. That's legalism. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, I'm just saying, like, how we spend our time actually shows our heart's affection. And so we have to be thinking about, like, I'm not saying don't watch shows on Netflix or don't have fun or any of those things, right? I'm just saying, what are we spending? What are we wasting our lives on? Do they, do they have significance? Do they have eternal investment? And so I think when we talk about this, I think we have to be looking at this. When I've been reading the scriptures, I've been trying to place myself in the story. I, I talked about this a few weeks ago. It's so easy for us just to read stories and not think about like the environments or the, the smells or the attitudes around the story. And I started just closing my eyes and just kind of picturing, okay, who, who's there? Trying to picture the house. Jesus is reclining. Um, there's groups of people having conversations. And then in comes this woman and she breaks up in the vial. And the first thing that hit me was the smell of the room changed. But then also the mood of the room changed. Because passion kind of draws critique. And you know who I found myself being in the story? The disciples. Judas. I didn't find myself being the woman who waste on Jesus. I mean, it was a sad thing. I don't think anyone's ever accused me of wasting all of my life on Jesus. And so that just like brought me into the room a little bit. And so when I, when I started to think about it, I started to think of what is the point of this passage? Jesus, what do I have that is of greatest value that I could waste on you? And you know what I came back with? It's me. I think the point of the passage is we are the perfume. Jesus thought that we had so much value that he gave up his very life so that we would be reconciled to him. So I think the point of the passage is is what are you spending your stuff on? I don't think it's so much your stuff is what are you spending you on? What are you spending your life on? What are you giving your life to? And I think Jesus is very clear. He's saying, don't waste your life. You have opportunity to waste your life in so many different ways on things that don't matter or to waste it on me. See, she broke the bottle, but Christ broke his body. She made a financial sacrifice of passionate worship, but Jesus made a passionate display of love by giving his life as the ultimate sacrifice. His body broken for us. And what a beautiful response if we were to break our bodies for him in that way. You see, the woman understood the true value of this true king. I think the reason why we tend not to spend our time with Jesus or focusing on Jesus uh, being part of our life and being manifest in part of our lives or all of our lives is because we don't recognize him as the one who has the most value. Amen. See, in the, in the Old Testament, when, G, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he said, don't worship any other gods before me. Well, why would he say that to us? Because he knows anything else that you would give your life to or give your affections to fails in comparison with me. He knows his value, and I think Jesus is standing there waiting for us. Romans eight thirty one through 32 says, 
What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not, but gave him up for all us all along with him, graciously give us all things? Only when we believe, not just intellectually, oh, Jesus, you're the king, you're the best, like not just intellectually have a cognitive assent of a doctrine of who Jesus is, but when we allow God to actually do a work in our hearts to say, Jesus, would you actually become to the core of who I am so real that I understand how dearly loved I am by you, that I am a child of you. When I actually allow that to sink into the core of who I am, I actually respond out of gratitude. You see, because if we're trying to spend our lives in our own strength, we will try to spend it in ways where we will never look to God as a thing that he gave us these gifts, that he gave us. We'll look at him and say, the works of my hands did this thing. But when we understand that it is God and his good grace that he gives all to us, it actually responds that he broke his body for us, that he gave himself for us, and so that I can give myself in response to him. Because when Jesus talks about discipleship, when Jesus talks about what it means to be a a follower of him, he doesn't talk about it in the way that our bumper stickers do, that we're just forgiven. No, he says, it is your whole life given to me, and when you give your life to me, you will find life. It is actually all of our lives being poured out to Jesus, and that he is actually giving us the very life that we desperately need. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to put my trust in him, was not just something I believed once in my past, and I'm just forgiven. Now I'm just waiting until fire insurance until I get to heaven. No, Jesus has implications for me here. And now he can change my relationships. He can change how my coworkers, he can change things because he is the God who raises dead to life, who brings the lepers who are sick and heals them and restores them. And if you want that this morning, would you hear his voice calling you into this room and say, don't waste another drop of your life on something that is not eternal. Would you waste your life on me and I will bring life to you. Church, this is what I want for us. I want us to see our identity as children of God where the things of this world fade in comparison Because we're not chasing after the newest house, the newest car, the newest job, the newest thing, and we miss our kids, or we miss our spouse, or we miss the neighbor across the street. No, we are giving our lives to the things that God has called us to, to give our lives to, because we are modeling after Jesus who gave his life for us. It's a response. I'm not trying to guilt you this morning. I'm trying to get you to respond out of gratitude of God who has given us all so generously that we would give generously back to him. And that is what he calls us to. The last thing I want us to respond in singing, and here's how I want us to respond as an audience of one. I was thinking about this woman today. When she came in, she had to have known that what she did was going to bring critique. She had to have known that what she was going to do was going to bring snarking. And she did it anyway. And I got to thinking about when I publicly pray, sometimes I'm praying about what I want other people to hear or how I put a prayer together or what did I say. Or I'm not praying to the audience of one. 
When I worship, sometimes I'm wor- worried about, like, what are people behind me? Am I raising my hands high enough? Am I doing the right motion? Like, like am, I, am I worshiping God in an audience of one kind of way? And what would it look like for us to recognize the value of this risen Jesus, this true king, and for us to recognize that our true value is found in the value of him who declares us righteous, declares us him, his, and that we can actually live into that in our everyday, everyday ordinary lives. So would you stand with me and respond to our king?